I'm Julie Holland. And I'm Nick Spacek. We're the hosts of The Carnage Report, a horror news podcast, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Every other Thursday, we bring you the latest news you can use on horror movies, casting, production, re-releases, trailers, and more. We also do a deep dive into a movie new to streaming or theaters, giving you our thoughts and opinions on whether you should check it out. Toss in recommendations for similar movies and a whole lot of commentary, and it's all the horror news you can use. The Carnage Report is on Twitter and Instagram at Report Carnage. Find us at cinepunks.com, that's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy folks, my name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault Podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at VHSVaultPodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud, Fast, Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Com, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. It's E-S-S-E-X coffeeroasters.com. Com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, that song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network, and I told him, I love this song, I want to use it, so that way people don't have to just listen to me talk, and he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were, you can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, it's off of their album, Believes in You. You can get the 10-song... The 10-song LP is out May 5th. Friday, May 5th. 
uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, Corpse Grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and pick up your copies of Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite films, just in time for the new Netflix movie Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. Also available is Hell Comes to Frogtown, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper, James Hong's The Vineyard, Pledge Night, Lust in the Dust, starring Divine, Putney Swope, The Amityville Cursed Collection, and much, much more. Also, don't forget to pre-order your copy of Tammy and the T-Rex in glorious 4K Ultra High Definition, or Blu-ray, and The Angel Collection. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Byers and joining me today is a very specific... Can't talk today. A very special guest. Um, Eric Arznow. He is a huge, I'm going to just read your bio verbatim that you gave me, a huge champion of the Milwaukee film and music scene. Eric has passionately thrived in both camps over the last 15 years in his favorite city in the United States. Eric currently operates the post-production house Funland Studios in the heart of Milwaukee and has won several awards for his animated music video, Ride of the Devil's Teeth, and as the editor for the feature film Deep Woods as well as several advertising awards for his commercial work. On top of that, I'm just going to freeball it now, um, I became aware of you because of your just passionate love for not not only cinema, but specifically weird cinema, which is, I think, kind of how we met. I met technically met you at a garage sale. Yeah, You were totally. selling weird movies, yeah. and that's what caught my eye. Yeah, no, and uh, through mutual friends of ours, too, uh, who just love, yeah, genre films, cult stuff, all that sort of thing, so... It's honestly surprising that we hadn't met before, considering we have similar interests and how many people we know. Yeah, no, totally. And the fact that you just, I mean, 
you've been a big champion for all that stuff too. Like, and have a huge online presence for that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it's 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 funny. So, uh, for all the the listeners now, like I, said, I I met Eric. I feel like I've been I was aware of you for a long time because uh, I'd seen your band play and I just heard your name being mentioned because like I'm good friends with Kyle right. Kyle Arpey, right. but um, I um I was at my friend Josh's house who I think is related to you. Yeah, uh, my brother married his sister. So, yeah, he's a good friend now, too. <laughs> and I was at his house one time. He's like, oh, my friend Eric is having a having a yard sale. He's going to sell a bunch of weird movies. And Josh has got similar taste to me. So when he says there's there's weird movies for sale, like I know it's worth checking out. <laughs> and like I said, it happened to be you. And I remember I, I, found, I got there and like you had like out-of-print criterion still sealed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I have been a big collector for quite some time, um, and some of it's just gotten, you know, kind of crazy and out of hand, so. <laughs> I feel like I've, I'm, I haven't quite gotten to that spot yet, yeah. but we, we, we have dedicated a room to it, um, and we are going to be building wall-to-wall shelves on every wall just so I, I, I can expand as much as I want to. Oh, sure, um, yeah. But but then the hope is that with more space I can start getting a little more creative, like you know, breaking things up by by genre or director or what have you, instead of just feeling like I have to do alphabetical. Yeah, yeah. And for me, like I've even gotten to a point where I specifically just pick up mostly boutique label stuff at this point, like Vinegar Syndrome stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. It's nice supporting the smaller companies like that because they're they're just doing really cool work. Yeah, like exactly, and that's and. Actually, as a collector, I want uh, you know before we talk about the movie at hand and just talk about whatever. I I wanted to get your opinion about this because you are a collector as well, and you have been for quite a long time. Like I imagine you've been collecting physical media for probably a good portion of your life. If I had to, oh for guess. sure, yeah. Like so, in high school, um, my friend Siobhan had movie nights, and kind of the thing that spun me off into looking into weirder cinema was uh, the horror genre. She had like a double feature of evil dead and dead alive. And that was just something I hadn't seen before. Um, so totally just spiraled from there, like into like things like David Lynch and John waters and you know, the whole gamut. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about the, cause I feel like not a, a couple, like not a month goes by where I don't see some, clickbait any piece about how physical media is dying i'd like what do you think about that um i mean it's like to each their own i've definitely run into situations recently it's kind of been silly but been trying to introduce my two kids to the things now that they're getting older and um even just finding how frustrating it is that not everything is available on you know to stream or it was at one point but it got pulled down so for mm-hmm. me like the physical media thing is still super helpful um as a collector it's just a lot of fun to because of the boutique labels they definitely dress things up and make it more appealing um as an art piece a lot of the time too which is just you know it's fun for me i enjoy that kind of thing yeah same here and i was um i've been talking with friends of mine who do who do physical media reviews i have a friend named uh, Stephen bjork who writes for the digital bits and they do very in-depth reviews if anyone out there is interested um and i was talking to him about that recently where you know i'm in a 
plenty of different movie groups or home theater groups or what have you and it's always like this doom and gloom that you know physical media is dying but i just i just feel like we are living in a new golden age and we don't even realize it because of all this the amount of stuff that we get and the quality of stuff that we're getting yeah like yeah during the you know the the days of vhs maybe early dvd a lot of weirdness was put out but a lot of it wasn't put out very well exactly no that's a very good point i mean so much of it is cleaned up and taken care of i mean going back to even vinegar syndrome it's just amazing the stuff that they're digging up and 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 cleaning up in a really nice way um it's funny i mean i've talked to a friend like that in the industry and he was even like yeah half the stuff you're able to just you know watch assess you know and access easily nowadays is like stuff i really had to dig for you know like 20 30 years ago it just wasn't easy to come by and i feel like that for sure has been a big benefit of the the whole like collector's boom for sure yeah like i I definitely feel like the the world of physical media is changing like i you can't go to target or best buy and and find things anymore like there was a period of time when i first got into collecting blu-ray where you could find like Blue Underground and Code Red titles right. at Best Buy. Yeah, yeah. No, for like sure. That, those days are gone. Yeah. Um, but I, I just feel like... I don't, I don't remember a point in my life ever where there was so much stuff coming out that I couldn't keep up with. No, for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, <laughs> the weird thing about the hobby for me is I keep telling myself it's going to even be like a retirement thing for, you know, just like have all mm-hmm. this stuff on hand to enjoy when i when i get to hang around and and get back to movies more um it's i I try to sneak it in as much as i can but family life has definitely taken that over so oh yeah and you know and then because you have two yeah two kids yeah so and probably some of that's also curating things to watch as a a family exactly yeah i don't think you can you know necessarily watch psycho girls as a family maybe you can i don't know yeah no (laughs) No, so it's. I mean, it's fun though. Like, I get to show them really stupid things that I enjoy, like the '90s Super Mario Brothers movie and things. So I love that. Yeah, movie. it's a fantastic film. I I think it's legitimately, and I don't say this uh, joking. I legitimately think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, I do too. Like, it's. I get why people don't like it because it has absolutely nothing to do with the video game, but it's just visually really fascinating to watch and. Um, totally goes somewhere unexpected like you've never seen anything else like that which is you know it's cool i'm such a big fan of that movie the, the when my wife years ago got me an all-region blu-ray player that was the first thing i bought from oh, another sure. country because it was the only way to get it on yeah blu-ray. yeah like in a nice yeah nice quality and everything like that so. exactly because like i had like like the the dollar bin dvd that was floating around right but yeah Lousy Ever since Koopa took over. And you, Koopa, you're a lousy leader. One thing I cannot stand is naysay. Simon, de-evolve him now. De-evolve. Our old king. You try to get rid of him, but the king is everywhere. You can't get rid of him. See you later, alligator. You may think of evolution as an upward process. Things evolve from primeval slime up to single cell organisms, up to intelligent life. De-evolution, of course, works the opposite way. 
back to simpler forms. For instance, even our musical friend Toad can become a loyal child of the royal family. Goomba. Oh, I find myself with collecting in a very similar mindset that you have that, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't keep up with all of it. I buy stuff that I want to watch. I just, I just don't have the time to, but it's like you said, it's kind of like becoming like a, a retirement thing or eventually I'm going to watch all of it. Yeah. That's the hope. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't, I don't have any other vices. So right. Kind of, exactly. Collecting is kind of my thing. I don't spend money on alcohol or anything else. So collecting's kind of become my thing. Yeah. Same. And I mean, I don't know. It seems rather harmless in, in that aspect too. Um, so I don't know. It's been fun. I love it. So what kind of things have you, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of things have you been introdu- trying to introduce your kids to? I saw that you were working through uh, a series of 50s films for a while, or maybe still are. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of funny. It, it even kind of ties in with the movie we're going to talk about, too, um, Sunset Boulevard. But, like, yeah, Dexter got really obsessed with Marilyn Monroe for a while, and I introduced him to Audrey Hepburn, um, and also kind of just, like, melodrama stuff. He was really into black and white movies um that's awesome yeah not many kids are i know it was great i mean it was crazy like uh, i think one night mom was out and we wanted to just hang out and get a pizza and stuff and we ended up watching bus stop and picnic so it was like yeah it was really weird but fun so that's awesome yeah. like it's it, it's funny enough like picnic i remember that was a movie my mom would watch a lot yeah or uh and when i was a kid i just i told myself i had no interest in it so i think it's cool that they do yeah um and hopefully that continues on because like there's things that my my mom or dad tried to show me when i was younger that really stuck with me like i love disaster films because of my mom oh sure and watching a poseidon adventure yeah yeah uh that movie still holds up is and still like edge of your seat exciting yeah no that's fantastic um but then like as a kid i just i couldn't get into westerns but now i love them yeah yeah same my dad was into so that's the kind of the weird thing too i mean um i don't know that i'll ever be a huge fan of like john wayne westerns and so that was like my only yeah. exposure to that through my dad um but then when you find all the other kind of like goofy territories you can go with westerns it becomes just like totally awesome to get into that genre oh definitely yeah um yeah it's just it's it's cool to see um because i'm not a parent yet i'm hoping to be one day um but it's it's kind of because that was one thing that me and my wife were talking about like how do you get how do you introduce kids to things that you're you're passionate about without them kind of pushing back because it's something their parents are into yeah i mean it's funny i deal with that all the time um probably more so with music but like yeah you just kind of find an interest um dexter would ask questions about actresses or, or you know actors that he would find on the other hand, my youngest, he got super into Stranger Things, and that was a gateway to start showing him other horror movie-related type stuff that he's been getting oh, into. Oh, and that shows a plethora for, like, well, if you like this aspect, you could yeah. see this. And, like, it's funny, like, even, like, things like social media or whatever get them obsessed over things like uh, Megan was really huge with them. So, like, yeah, because of, like, TikTok and things like that, so. 
that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I think now would be a good time to move on to the movie. What do you think? Yeah, no, totally. So as listeners know, normally on this show, I will sit down and write like a three paragraph <laughs> a de- a description of the movie along with historical context and a bunch of other fun stuff. But ever since I have started doing this show completely on my own, I have been forgetting. So this today, I'm going to wing it. So on today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show, we are talking about a movie that has been on my shame list for quite some time. Uh, today, I have uh, Eric Arsnow on the show. Am I saying your last name correctly? Yeah, Arsnow. Yeah. Arsnow? Yeah. Um, I have him on the show. Originally, I was also going to have a friend of the show, Nico Aldrich, on the show because this is one of his favorite movies. And... This movie has been in my peripheries for such a long time, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not seeing it sooner. Directed by Billy Wilder from 1950, uh, Sunset Boulevard tells the story of a screenwriter, which I'm struggling to remember his name at the moment, uh, Joe Gillis. A screenwriter by the name of Joe Gillis, who writes pretty small, as he describes, B-level pictures. Um, He's having some money issues, is unable to... um, get a job that will that will pay him at this time and is having problems with his car potentially getting repossessed well while trying to get a job and keep the the repo man at bay he ends up pulling into the garage of a dilapidated mansion while there he finds that the mansion is not deserted and is in fact uh uh lived in by a classic hollywood actress by the name of nora desmond and her manservant max while there, um, Joe finds himself uh, in the middle of, I'll just be blunt, a, a lot of weirdness. The, yeah. the, the mansion's falling apart around them. When uh, Joe gets there, they are conducting about to conduct a funeral for a chimp. And he's just unsure what's going on. Uh, once he puts together that uh, Norma Desmond is a big name actress and he, and she finds out that he's a screenwriter, they get into a uh, codependent working relationship that has Joe helping Norma rewrite this really big script that it looks like it's probably hundreds of pages when she shows it, uh, an adaptation of the story of Salome uh, with hopes of her starring as the lead role so she can get herself back on top. Heather Harper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance. Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party, who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? You did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. But this was different because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies, the little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me, the great ones like Cecil B. DeMille, all those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? 
Some car hop or a dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. get the chance to research as much as I wanted to, so I don't have as much historical context as I would want to, so uh, let's just talk about the movie a little bit. Sure, yeah. So, you, when I sent out in, uh, trying to get people to be on this season of the podcast, you, um, there was two movies that you chose, that you said you wanted to be part of. It was this one, and it was Possession. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your, your history with this movie. Um, yeah, so ironically, I'm kind of in a similar boat. I caught it a few years ago. Uh, the last place I worked at, we started a film club, and it was a pick from one of my coworkers. Uh, it had always been on my radar as well. Um, and I don't know, it just really hit me hard. It's a very cool film. Stylistically, it blends a lot of interesting things where it's very film noir. At the same time, it's also... Um, very melodrama melodramatic um and even kind definitely. of taps into like gothic horror a little bit mm-hmm. uh with, yeah, with some of the atmosphere and just vibe of the art direction so i don't know it's, it's a great film yeah i so as i said this was my first time seeing it and i was kind of blown away with it by it because i i didn't know what to expect going into this movie i feel like as a movie i had a very clear image in my mind of what this movie was going to be or what it was going to be about it actually kind of reminded me of when i saw apocalypse now i wasn't ready for the movie that i actually got when i finally saw it oh sure um because i knew it was a it was a movie about old hollywood and i knew it was a movie about um you know an actress who has not been relevant in a long time trying to make herself relevant again but I wasn't expecting, like you said, the gothic horror elements. I wasn't expecting the noir elements. And I wasn't expecting it to feel as contemporary and, and modern as it did, considering its age. Yeah, it's very strange how it is a timeless story about like opportunists. And um, I mean, anybody who's been creative, they kind of have an understanding of what it feels like to be appreciated for your creativity. Mm-hmm. Um and then the whole dilemma with like ageism and how that comes into play. Uh, and that I think even more specifically in the creative field, it's hard to grow old than what you do because there's always going to be that new up and comer. 
Um, so it deals with that narrative a lot too, which is really fascinating and, and timeless because it's, it's a never ending thing, you know? And it, I was surprised too, just by, for lack of a better term, how many um, like inside baseball references there were in this movie um, that I just didn't know how they would translate to audience at the time. Um, because 1950, you know, there wasn't as much in terms of there was there was film criticism. Don't get me wrong, but people weren't writing about movies the way that we do now. People weren't really making movies about right making movies the way we do now. Yeah, and so much so that it honestly feels like um, uh, Damien Chazelle was trying to make a prequel to this movie when he made Babylon. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, like, so the interesting thing about this, too, uh, I was looking into it a little bit, is, like, this is, like, one of the first films that was a movie about making movies, and to the degree where it, like, kind of got into, like, a seedy underbelly, like, the things you didn't want to see about Hollywood, and I guess uh, Billy Wilder had felt like he had the opportunity to take a chance, because a few years earlier, I'm going to forget what film it was for, but he had won his first Oscar. Um, Okay. And so he felt like it was like one of his first he's actually okay, so yeah, I'll backtrack a little bit. He's actually like a German immigrant to Hollywood. Um he left Germany during World War Two. Uh actually with the composer of this film. They were like really good friends. And then they Even Fran- uh Franz Waxman? Yeah. And so they okay. they landed in Paris for a little bit and were making films there, but eventually worked their way to Hollywood. Um and so like yeah, he finally was working his way up the chain won his first Oscar, was getting welcomed to like a lot more Hollywood events and parties and things like that. And he started to see like the leftover of the silent era of like 1930s actors and actresses just out of work. And it was kind of sad um, and depressing, but inspiring to him to then go and write this film, uh, which him, shoot, I'm going to forget his writing partner's name, but like they were very um, nervous about it. Uh, but it was strange. They had Paramount's full support to use the studio name and things like that. Um, and then I guess even when they finished the film and started uh, screening it, they didn't screen it in California right away. The first place was actually in Illinois to do test screening um, hmm. just because they were a little bit worried about potential backlash for the film, but then ended up not really getting a ton of it. So, Yeah, because like, now it's um it's just so common that we know how the film industry works yeah i don't imagine a family in illinois knew that or even probably knew much of it that there was much of a seedy underbelly to to it or um because like i've talked about this before on the show it's the the transition from uh, silent pictures to to sound left a lot of people in the dust right yeah and i guess to even clarify that plot point for people tuning in it's like what ends up happening is norma desmond was a really good face of the silent era age mm-hmm. of making films but then yeah just did not translate well to the talkies and acting as an you know a vocal actress so she got pretty much left to the wayside and that's kind of like the crux of the the whole film yeah, and it's actually I appreciate that they gave the 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 performance that um, well, I'm struggling to think of names too that uh, Gloria Swanson did for Norma because it was a very 
unflattering like vocal performance yes and, yeah um and i i kept thinking because uh, i there's a scene near the end of the film where norma is uh harassing the uh, joe's writing partner the the woman that he's working oh with. yeah betty schaefer and they say on the phone, it's like, oh, it's the woman with the weird voice again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for for people out there listening who don't know, so many people, if they didn't have an appealing voice, would just they wouldn't get work anymore. Yeah, right. Or and she kept saying, it's like, oh, you don't need dialogue. I have a face. Yes. And yeah. I, they never explicitly say it, but I really get the feeling that she just couldn't 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 keep up. Yeah. With with performing. While having to talk. So, and the interesting thing too about all that is uh, Billy Wilder actually cast it, Gloria Swanson wasn't his first pick. There was like some prima donna actresses he kind of went through that had some you know special requests, whether it was dialogue changes or they wanted rights to the negative. So he ended up passing on them. But Gloria Swanson was a working uh, silent film actress from the 1930s, um, mm-hmm. and then funny enough like this film ended up kind of being her real comeback uh and i was reading she kind of struggled afterwards a bit where she didn't want to continue doing films because the types of offers she kept getting were based on this character and she kind of got pigeonholed and they're like well we want you to be like norma desmond or you know have this really big yeah she probably got a lot of those like um crazy hag roles yeah I think that's yeah. that's what uh john waters calls them like this and whatever happened to baby jane and right so yeah she just kind of disappeared again into it um but i mean this film was a huge success for everybody involved uh and uh, obviously now has grown a reputation to be quite a a pillar of um reference and uh importance in the the hollywood community lady you got the wrong man i had some trouble with my car flat tire I pulled into your garage until I could get a spare. I thought this was an empty house. It is not. Get out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you lost your friend. And I don't think red is the right color. Wait a minute. Haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh-huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. Buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. Look at them in the front offices. The masterminds. They took the idols and smashed them. The Fairbankses, the Gilberts, the Valentinos. And who have we got now? Some nobodies. Don't blame me. I, I'm not an executive, just a writer. And it just it feels like an anomaly of, of a movie because even more so, you know, you have um, Eric von Stroheim yeah. playing, playing Max. Uh, for listeners who don't know, Eric von Stroheim not only was an actor, but he was a pretty prolific director as well. Yeah. So much so that the scene in this movie where they are uh, showing one of Norma Desmond's movies is actually a movie that Eric von Stroheim directed starring Gloria Swanson. Right. Yeah. And he was like, a, he had his own shortcomings too. I was reading, I think like it was the movie Greed was kind of like the start of his end where... Uh, it ended up being like a really long production costing a lot. And so like 
yeah kind of like this whole film is kind of built on real actual actors actresses directors who were failed um participants in the whole hollywood hollywood system um, and, and, and that makes it even more because like obviously they had buster keaton in a scene yeah um which uh amused the hell out of me because i'm a big buster keaton fan so it's just interesting to see him play himself yeah i think they had uh um hb warner i think was in this as well um but so you have like I said eric von stroheim and gloria swanson people who had started in the silent era and had their success and kind of stayed relevant like they didn't necessarily full-on disappear but were a lot less popular and then it's even more surprising that they were able to get cecil b demille to play himself probably the biggest like the biggest success story of people transitioning from the silent era yeah and that the draw there actually the only reason he did do it was because of gloria swanson he was a, a really big fan of hers and champion of her so but See that? i didn't know yeah and it was great i mean his uh his whole bit in there was that's such a incredible scene um how how that all plays out where uh there's like a mishap where Norma, um, the character Norma Desmond, thinks she's going to get her big chance back in Hollywood for the Solomon character and is pitching DeMille to direct it and uh, goes to set to visit DeMille and he's all like, you know, confused because she's not supposed to be there. And um, a lot of the cr- and he, crew and, and, it's stuff. Ver- and it's very much like when she shows up, it's like he is not sure how the rest of his day is going to go. Right. Her being there is not a good thing. Right. Right. And then, yeah, like, so then the, the crew and stuff start recognizing her. Um, and it's kind of this whole like weird, fantastical moment where, uh, it's very surreal. And they start almost mm-hmm. kind of shining the light on her. Like this is going to be a big Hollywood moment. And it all gets taken away pretty quickly when they realize that they were just wanting to rent Norma Desmond's car for a different film. And then DeMille just like, totally kills that idea because he doesn't even want to, you know, lead her on or let her know that it was a mistake that the, the film's not going to happen. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And cause in the context of the movie, they give the, um, they, they, Norma Desmond claims that her, uh, the Bill's biggest picture starred her. Yes. Um, so they, at least one point in their careers had been very close. And with Norma Desmond's, um, pretty open talk about uh you know suicidal ideation and um honestly just her delusion of thinking that she's still a big star yeah i imagine that he he has been pushing himself away for a while yeah yeah it seems like he was trying to distance himself and but yet i mean it's such an incredible acting role for a director like a real director because it's just handled so masterfully and credit, you know, very credible. Like his his reactions, and um, you can tell he has like a genuine care for the Norma Desmond character. It's just like, yeah, he's like, and it was probably easy for him to to do because he not only like he knew actors and actresses like that who just couldn't hang, and you know he he. It's, it's tough when you're in a situation of power like right. him. And actually, I, I want to say, too, I really thought, like, when they kept saying, oh, uh, Norma Desmond's here for Mr. DeMille, and they kept, like, passing from person to person. And I was like, there's no way Cecil B. DeMille's going to be in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And then when he was, yeah. uh, I had to look it up. It's like, wait, that looks like him. Yeah, it's insane. And I was like, oh, shit, it really was him. Yeah. I really thought they were gonna, it was going to just be, like, 
you know, you'd see the back of a chair and like a cigar, like almost like um, sure. like the the claw from Inspector Gadget. Never actually see his face, and and like you said, he gives a, a really good performance. Yeah, and I think part of that is he knew people like that, as I said, like who couldn't hang. And when you uh, have a position of power like he does, you know, he could probably make a phone call and get Norman Desmond in a role. Yeah. If he really wanted yeah. to. But he doesn't. And it's not any reflection on his opinions on Norman Desmond. I'm sure he, he, he loves her as a person. Um, I think it's just, it's the kind of that weight of power. Like you can't necessarily give handouts to everyone just because you like them. Yeah. And when he's speaking to Gloria Swanson, and just the way that he handles a lot of those scenes, it just, to me, really right as someone, you've been in this position. Sure, yeah. You know what this feels like. And I think he's also aware that, because it's not just actors and actresses that struggled. There's a lot of directors who couldn't get, couldn't grasp the world of sound. Yes, yeah. Um, there's I've seen movies in, in, in their, those early days of sound pictures where they would put you know, the microphone in a, uh, in a centerpiece and people leaning too closely. Over, like, sound changed people's blocking quite a bit. Yeah. You no longer were as free as they had been. You can't just put the camera anywhere now. Yeah. Because uh, if you, some of those, some of those old sound films, they're being reckless <laughs> where they put the camera sometimes. Yeah. And you couldn't do that. Um, so I think he's aware too that he is lucky to be where he is. Right, he was able to transition, and it's—I mean, it's kind of the thing with like any sort of creative endeavor. There's always like a new a new tool that presents itself. Like, I mean, even right mm-hmm. now we're going through the whole like AI debate. Um, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a similar thing. Like, there's you know careers that evolve based on things like that, or things that start to fade away and for the people that are fading away like you know Cecil B. DeMille could have easily faded away like some of those other directors they kind of have to problem solve in a different way and it's kind of like a you know you either succeed or you don't yeah and I I dealt with that in just a very small way not in the even in the same way that he did but when I was first getting into the world of um video editing and trying to market myself as doing that that was right um around the time that um after effects came out oh sure and i couldn't wrap my mind around that program to save my life yeah uh and i started thinking it's like oh shit well there goes so many opportunities for me because i don't know how to do after effects um and you know i've I've, I've learned a couple things but it's I know how that feels to feel like you're being left behind. Yes. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean you are, but you have that panic yeah. that I can't keep up. And there's always like, like, I mean, I, I work in that field, you know, video editing and animation stuff like that. I constantly have on my mind that there will be a day where what I know won't be good enough. Um, Cause it always happens. Uh, it's just, you try to, I think a big part of like success and probably in DeMille's case too, is like there's an extension of like knowing how to be creative and also just knowing how to be a good person and 
work as a teammate or like surround yourself with other good people to succeed at a common goal. And I think like a lot of that has, you know, comes into play for a longer term success. Um, where like, you know, if you get on other people's level and, and have friends that you bring up or treat well and, um, work on these creative projects together and that gains success, you can continue, you know, snowballing until that runs out, you know? No, but I, I must apologize for not calling you. You'd better. I'm very angry. Well, you can see I'm, I'm terribly busy. That's no excuse. You read the script, of course. Yes, I did. Then you could have picked up the telephone yourself instead of leaving it to one of your assistants. Hmm? What assistant? Now, don't play innocent. Somebody named uh, Gordon Cole. Gordon Cole? And if you hadn't been pretty darn interested in that script, he wouldn't have tried to get me on the telephone ten times. Gordon Cole. Norma, I'm in the middle of a rehearsal. Now, why don't you just sit up here in my chair and make yourself comfortable, hmm? Thank you. That's a girl. Yeah. I won't be a moment. Bring me a telephone and get me Gordon Cole. Right. C.B. DeMille. Have you been calling Norma Desmond? Yes, Mr. DeMille. It's that car of hers, an old Isada Fraschini. Her chauffeur drove it in on the lot the other day. It looks just right for the Crosby picture. We want to rent it for a couple of weeks. Oh, I see. Well, and one thing that struck me, so I'll, I'll admit, um, movies uh, from the 1950s are still a little bit of a blind spot for me. It's it's kind of something I've been retroactively going back and trying to get myself more into. Sure. Which is why I programmed this movie into this season. Um, the relationship between uh, Norman Desmond and Joe Gillis, and William Holden does a phenomenal job as um, Joe Gillis, that felt very unlike anything i had seen in in films from that time period oh 100 percent. it's kind of uh very a little bit taboo in a way and i mean i was even reading an article where they talked about the suggestion of them having more of a deeper romantic relationship than what is shown on film but because of the code era they couldn't show it anyway but because of the fact that they weren't allowed to show that how it kind of even heightened it and made it a little bit more creepy uh because, I mean, like, the thing is, is, like, Joe Gillis walks in right when they're about to bury this pet chimp, as you mentioned earlier. And I feel like he kind of quickly became a replacement for that void that Norma Desmond had of, mm-hmm. like, you know, that companionship at the house. Where all of a sudden, you know, she was, um, you know, just flaunting tons of money at him and gifts and things like that. And he just 
started taking it. It kind of was like an emasculating, you know, scenario for him because he was trying to get real work, but he's like, well, this, you know, older actress is just going to keep giving me things. So I'm just going to ride this out. Um, and and he, he was against it at first, but he never fought that hard no. to get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that's the kind of like <clears throat> the weird relationship that developed is, um, yeah, this weird companionship that is kind of toxic and unhealthy in some ways because, you know, neither of them were really getting something true out of it, you know? No, and it's uh, – me and my I mean, me and my wife were actually discussing that. Um, and I like what you said when you said that um, because we didn't see as much or because of the, the Hayes Code that we couldn't get – know exactly what was going on between them it definitely made it far more uncomfortable because we were debating whether or not they had it definitely wasn't a romantic relationship in that because uh, i don't think joe ever hid the fact that he wasn't interested in her right um but we were debating whether or not it was but it was a potential sexual relationship yeah and there was one moment in the movie that made me think that it would it it was or if he was just her pet and that's a, I think it kind of was a bit of that, but I definitely feel like, yeah, it alluded to like things beyond what we were seeing too. Yeah, especially during the so when because I just kept thinking throughout the movie, it's like now's your chance to escape, get away, right, get, right. run away. Yeah, well, like when he's at the mansion, it makes sense. Like granted, he could have huffed it, but you know, uh, when he's at the mansion, it makes sense because he's so far removed from everything. But when she's taking you shopping in the city, you could just slip out. Right. And she wouldn't know. And he never did. Yeah. Um, but there's that scene where after the the New Year's Eve party, mm-hmm. which was so sur- – I love that that band got played, got paid to just – Just hang. Yeah. yeah. Would you, would, if, if, if your band got that offer, would you take it? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those <laughs> things where, like, they were probably duped into thinking it was a real New Year's Eve party, too. That's fair. But they, That's they fair. showed up, and, like, absolutely nobody was there, and it was completely awkward. And I, I do love that they kept playing. Though. Yeah, yeah. Like, I w- mean, well into when they should have stopped. Yeah, they just, and just kept left. going. Yeah. Pure professionals. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, he, ex- he, uh, he, Joe escapes. He goes to his friend's place. Um, I love that he, you know, one scene he asks if he can sleep on their couch, and then the very next scene he's already trying to steal his best his best friend's girlfriend. Yeah, like, it's just like yeah, instantaneously. Yeah, um, and then he gets the call from Max that um, Norma's Norma yeah trying, tried to kill herself. Yeah, and he goes running back, and he goes running back, and they I don't remember exactly what is said between them, but the scene ends with looks like norma moving in for a kiss and the camera and 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 the the editing fades out yeah and that's what made me think it's like oh i think there's probably more than just companionship going on right yeah no i mean i totally get the same vibe from that too and um it's just a weird situation they found themselves in and i feel like that guilt definitely comes to a head towards the end of the film um I'm probably, you know, skipping over a lot, but it's just... Oh, no, that, that's, that's the beauty of this show. It can go wherever it needs to go. Sure. I mean, it's it's crazy, though, because, yeah, like, he has this boiling point moment. It's actually going back to that phone call you're talking about, the woman with the weird voice, and um, 
Norma Desmond bugging Betty Schaefer, you know, like I know where Joe Gillis is hanging out kind of thing where he gets on the phone, takes it from Norma and and tells um, Betty, here's the address show up. I can't believe she came. Yeah. And it's like probably the middle of the night, you know, really late at night or early morning even because he was going back and forth, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, but yeah, like shows up and then he just totally unloads and is probably like let go of all this like pent up like this is a really weird situation i am but this is what's going on to the point where he makes himself a creepy character to scare her off and go marry her um fiance Artie. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask about that because i was i was trying to figure out what he was trying to accomplish in that scene yeah and it really felt like he was trying to scare her off yeah he knew that like Artie was a more stable situation for her uh, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, he was kind of a bad person for trying to steal her from Artie. And then the just ongoing weirdness of being this, like, yeah, essentially like a pet for Norma Desmond for assuming at least a year or two at that point, you know. Um, just, yeah, total, total weirdness. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it was and any chance that, you know, she because she threw him a lot of bones to try to get him writing work or to yeah. try to get him involved, and he shot them all down. Yeah, to the point where, like, I I feel like when he started helping Betty, he had no interest in writing that script. No, no, not at all. I I honestly feel because like once upon a time you could have you could be a working screenwriter and make a living. Uh, he was just on un- he was just under making a living. Yeah. But um, I honestly got the feeling from his, his his craft with screenwriting is that he did he didn't necessarily like doing it. He was just good enough at it that he could get stuff sold. So the second he re- he found that he doesn't have to write to make a living, right? I think he he kind of just jumped on on that idea. Well, and like I mean, at that point in his life too, he was also in a lot of trouble. I mean, he had the people mm-hmm. trying to repo his car and all that sort of thing, and. I mean, even that's a kind of funny moment where they finally did find his car, and Norman Desmond's like, "Well, what are you worried about that for? Max will drive us anywhere," kind of thing. Yeah, we have a car. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, it's like he's just getting this luxury lifestyle thrown in his face, and just kind of succumbs to it, and is like, you know, just like whatever, you know, I'll just roll. Yeah. With it. Yeah, and it's there's such a one. I'm surprised with with the Hayes Code that they could even allude to suicide right at all in this yeah like that shocked me when they were or, you know they didn't just kind of hint at it they straight out said it yeah and they showed her wrist bandaged up it's like i didn't think they could hell they couldn't show a toilet right but they could show that they couldn't show two people in bed together but they could show that yeah i mean it's it's intense and there's like a lot of like weird little dark things like that that just made it uh all that more effective and unnerving for sure Two or three times a week, Max would haul up that enormous oil painting that had been presented to her by some Nevada Chamber of Commerce. And we'd see a movie, right in her living room. So much nicer than going out, she'd say. The plain fact was she was afraid of that world outside. Afraid it would remind her that time had passed. They were silent movies, and Max would run the projection machine which was just as well. It kept him from giving us an accompaniment on that wheezing organ. 
she'd sit very close to me. And she'd smell of tube roses, which is not my favorite perfume, not by a long shot. Sometimes, as we watched, she'd clutch my arm or my hand, forgetting she was my employer, just becoming a fan, excited about that actress up there on the screen. I guess I don't have to tell you who the star was. They were always her pictures. That's all she wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the moment where, because this movie is so smart with the way that it's written. Yeah. Where every time I feel like I know where it's where, what's happening or what's going on, something shifts, a perspective changes, um, and finding out because like throughout the entire movie, I kept thinking about the character of Max. I'm like, he's not. If you know, if movies have taught me anything. I thought he was going to be a lot more standoffish against Joe, and he was a little bit at the beginning. But I was always surprised about how much he was opening up to him. Sure. Yeah. And how much it felt like he was legitimately trying to help him. Yeah. Um, and then when you find out his history with Norma, for me, I think it changes the entire movie. Yeah, that he was also a failed film director and uh, first husband, and yeah. And it's it's got a very, um, it almost reminds me of Let the Right One In. Sure. Where uh, you know you have the old guy taking care of the young vampire and uh she finds someone new to play with yeah yeah and then that will take his place and i just kept thinking is like is this passing joe's the baton ev- <laughs> yeah is this joe's eventual fate is he gonna become the butler yeah yeah because like the entire time like now well, i was thinking back to the film and i was like oh this is just so heartbreaking because he's doing all these things not because he has to because he legitimately wants to yeah because he's still loves normal well and that's even the you know crazy thing to think about too is like how weird and broken of a person max had to have been to like not only put up with that but um like his relationship with her as her butler and things like that is very standoffish like he doesn't have a a romantic connection to her anymore he just Mm -hmm. observes um and he's doing a lot of strange things that she isn't aware of just to try and make sure that she's happy whether it's writing fan letters for her to send you know responses to or even with the um the car situation with DeMille he was another one who's like we absolutely cannot tell her you know like I'll make her believe that this film is going to happen as long as I have to you know mm-hmm. yeah and it was it was, and the way that they trickled in the information about Max was was fascinating too um because like I said, uh, Eric von Stroheim, who played Max, he he directed the, the was that greed that they were showing on the wall? Uh, no, I I can't remember the name of the the film. But. Um, well they they were showing one of the movies that um, uh, Gloria Swanson starred in that he actually made. Um, and thinking about it, it's like more than likely in this world that was probably one of the movies that Max directed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then so but. Later on, when they're at um, Paramount, Max kind of has a throwaway line, and he said, "Oh, I remember when my office was up there." Yep. And I remember it had um, leather walls or something like that. And I was thinking, it's like, wait, how long have you been? My first thought was, how long have you been? Have you been with Norma? Did you have an office? And now finding out that he was a failed director, it's like, oh, he had an office there because he worked at this studio. Yeah. Yeah. 
and um, it was I kind of got emotional near the at the at the final scene of the film, um, where Max is uh, directing the news cameras yeah. to make Norma think it's a movie, and it's you know to see his command of the cameras and what he's it was like oh he knows his craft yeah, and you almost wonder too if he could have made that transition but he didn't want to do it without norma oh sure that's a good point yeah like i feel like i started getting the feeling that he could have been where demille's at yeah but he saw that she wasn't making it and he didn't want to go without her yeah and he even compared himself to other famous directors because he had tossed like griffith's name in there too Mm -hmm. um so yeah, in this realm of Hollywood, he was at the top at one point, is what he alluded to. So. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. I don't think he ever specifically said what changed. He just said he couldn't. He couldn't hack it. Yeah. And I don't think D.W. Griffith really transitioned out of. Uh, I don't think he really transitioned well either. No. Yeah. Um. So out of that group, it was pretty much just a mill. And he wasn't mentioned, but John Ford is one of those directors that definitely transitioned. And What is it, Max? Want to wash the car? Are you doing a little spying in your off hours? You must be very careful as you cross the patio. Madame may be watching. How about going up the kitchen stairs and undressing in the dark? Will that do it? I'm not inquiring where Mr. Gillis goes every night. Why don't you? I'm writing a script. And I'm going to finish it, no matter what. It is just that I'm greatly worried about Madame. Sure you are. And we're not helping her any. Feeding her lies and more lies. Getting herself ready for a picture. What happens when she finds out? She never will. That is my job. And it has been for a long time. You must understand, I discovered her when she was 16. I made her a star, and I cannot let her be destroyed. You made her a star? Yes. I directed all her early films. There were three young directors who showed promise in those days. T.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, and Max von Meyerling. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career, only I found everything unendurable after she had left me. You see, I was her first husband. So yeah, there's so many layers that, um, I, except when I was surprised when I try when I did a little bit of research on this film to find that, for all things considered, it was a hit. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it it was nominated for Oscars. Did not win nearly as many as it should have. Gloria Swanson should have won for this role. Um, it did win also, for the screenplay though, and um, didn't uh, the soundtrack win too? I believe. Yes, it was, it was uh, best scoring back when they used to do dramatic or comedy. <laughs> and uh, um, Edith uh, Head, I believe, won for costume design. Uh, I've actually got it pulled up in front of me. Um, she did not. Oh, it she won did not. for best story and screenplay. 
It won Best Art Direction and Set Design for a black and white film. And then Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Um, but yeah. It doesn't even look like Edith Head was nominated. Oh, okay. Which is surprising to me. Yeah, she was great. Um, yeah, definitely. And for anyone out there who is not familiar with her name, be sure to look it up because she is prolific in uh, the world of cinema. But I was surprised that something this dense like if i i I feel like i was expecting this to find out that this movie was not really a hit and then it was reassessed later on but to find that it was a big film um surprised me in a good way that i was happy to to find out that um people were responding to something that all things considered was pretty weird yeah and right. I don't know, maybe it's just because there was a, I mean, the bigger audience there is obviously all the folks working in Hollywood. Um, and it's probably something that they could relate to. And for the people who didn't know that lifestyle, it probably was really eye opening to them, you know? Yeah. Cause like from everything that I have learned about the world of Hollywood, this is a pretty accurate representation of the life that a lot of these people lived um like i i made reference to it earlier but uh you know not, not too sure what you thought about the movie but damien chazelle's babylon feels like it lives in the same world as this yeah um and for anyone interested in in that transition from uh from silent to to sound there is an extremely stressful scene in there about them trying to request, shoot a scene uh in uh with sound for the first time and it's a fucking disaster yeah no i mean that's such a great correlation to this too and yeah i just i i i just watched it last night and i've been thinking about it all day and um i'm actually glad that i bought it because when i went to go just i was originally going to get it from the library and they didn't um none of the libraries by me had it and nothing ever transitions very fast at the library, so I knew I wasn't going to get it. So I decided to go to iTunes and just see what I can rent it for. And it was only a dollar more to buy it, so I decided just to, to buy it. I don't buy many things digitally, and I already want to go and rewatch it. I just I've, I I feel kind of spellbound by this movie. Yeah, and there's so much to it that's just interesting to learn about it too. Um, I mean, this is definitely like kind of. I think a lot of people consider it like the quintessential peak of billy wilder's career but he's done a lot yeah. of fantastic stuff too um did a lot of marilyn monroe's most famous movies like some make it hot or some like it hot um so i mean he's an interesting film director he actually was i was reading like one of the first people that kind of established the idea of a writer director role because um, not a lot of folks had taken on that sort of thing prior to him so yeah it's that's interesting in itself um how that eventually started becoming more of a thing like how that wasn't really a thing yeah like it was kind of a thing in the silent era but they didn't necessarily always have scripts for those like you know a lot of the comedians they would just kind of come up with their bits and uh, put, uh throw a story together um i i have the i used to have this habit of just going through 
when I was in college, and if I was ever stressed out, I'd have this really goofy game where I would pick a ra- I would go to the oldest movie that I could find, find a random crew member, and then just start making a web of all the different things that they've done. Oh shit! Just because I was I was curious throughout the time, and it's it was in, it was interesting how few crew positions those old movies had. It actually reminds me a lot of when I was just shooting stuff in college, and it was like the bare minimum you'd have someone there to roll the camera um someone helping with costumes yeah. maybe you know you had an editor and then that was kind of it like just the bare minimum yeah and to see how like nowadays like credits are sometimes like 10 minutes long because <laughs> there's so many people yeah yeah it's insane um but no i've i this movie really stuck with me and i'm i've so i i said to you before that um the 1950s were kind of a um blind spot for me so i'm looking forward to going back through not seeing more movies from the time period because i have seen some obviously uh but then seeing more of billy wilder's films um have you showed this to your kids yet no not yet um i think more so like dex might be into this now at his age um but like it's a heavy it's a lot Mm -hmm. of heavy stuff for them to pick up on or understand probably even appreciate to a degree um mm-hmm. the suicide thing's a little intense too but yeah that's yeah, that's yeah. definitely going to be a hard one for hard one for kids it's yeah. it, it's tough anyways yeah um but i could see dexter being fascinated with it because he's always into really big personalities and norma desmond definitely is the epitome of that type of hollywood character yeah definitely and it's it's one thing i was going to mention earlier is um this is one of those movies where now that I've seen it, I get a lot of the references yep. that I see from it. Yeah. You know, like for example, the, the, the final line, I'm ready for my close up, Mr. DeMille. Like I just heard that line forever, f- forever. And I had no idea where it came from. Yeah. Like I knew who Cecil B. DeMille was. I didn't know it was actually a line from a movie. Right. Yeah. That was the same thing for me when it finally hit. <laughs> And then I just I I love that that was the close up she went with was this really just like almost like vampiric yeah. style of walking and um yeah I just I just feel like this is a movie that I'm gonna unravel um the more I go along and uh, before I get to our the the section I I told you about the thrill house moment I wanted to actually get your opinion on something sure um since you have seen a lot a lot of films from this time period i was actually gonna hit you up for any recommendations you might have things that you maybe you've shown your kids and they've liked or things that you feel like might be similar just something anything that comes off the top of your head yeah well i mean like you know i brought up before like um huge fan of Doug- douglas sirk uh and he mm-hmm. was really coming into his own with the melodrama thing around this point with like magnificent obsession and uh all that heaven allows um I would totally get into those if you haven't seen either of them. Uh, I have not. This, this obsession and only having allows. Yeah, I always watch, uh, um, all that heaven allows like around Christmas time for some reason. But it's it's a really fascinating story. Like not to like get into that a ton, but kind of deals oh, with no, ageism too. Um, Rock Hudson is like the main guy in that film, and he's a younger gentleman who takes interest in an older woman who's a widow. And uh, kind of plays off of like why this love relationship shouldn't be happening, and it's, mm-hmm. it's it's really good. I love that movie. 
Oh, and you, you mentioned the ageism. That's 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 actually something that we uh, hadn't really gotten a chance to discuss too much. Um, I remember turning to my wife at one point and saying, "Cause I, before I watched the movie, I didn't I didn't look into anyone, anyone who was in it, because I just kind of wanted to go in as blind as possible." Yeah. So, um, I wasn't familiar. I knew who I knew the name Gloria Swanson, but I hadn't realized that she had been an actress in the silent era. Yeah. Uh, and I remember saying to my wife, "It's like I can't tell if she's a younger actress. They've aged up." Or an older actress that they've made look younger, because I or because uh, she didn't look as old as I was expecting her to look. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then when she she had said in the film that she was fifty, it kind of like blew me away because like that's the consider that she's washed up by fifty. Right. Right. And yeah. she had said she hadn't worked in like twenty years. Yeah. It's like so you stopped having a career at thirty. Yeah. And it's. Like no wonder she has such a tough time because like she's in her she was just hitting her prime yeah and they kicked her to the curb and I mean it's crazy like in, uh, I do a lot of advertising and in that industry it's kind of the same thing and it's really sad to see happen to just really smart people you know like it's like um everybody kind of leans towards the younger generation from the the thought that you know it's up and coming but they can also pay them less you know that's kind of mm-hmm. what it ultimately comes down to a lot of the time too um but there's so much knowledge and um you know just like a wealth of creativity from people who've been doing it forever that it's kind of sad when the ageism thing comes into play and it all just gets phased out and i'm sure that's what a lot of these characters were going through in this film yeah because like how many like nowadays it's it's well one people age differently now than they used to it's yeah like someone 50 now doesn't look like they did back then right um and also like people just weirdly look younger all the time like i couldn't tell you how old uh, william holden was it's like i just figured he was around the same age yeah just because he he just looked older than he was probably playing um and that and, always happens around that time period too. So, it's yeah, like, <laughs> or like that. It happens a lot of old with old pro wrestling. Like you'll, uh, there's a wrestler from back in the day named Arn Arn Anderson, and when he had his big heyday in the '80s, they're like, "Oh, he was 30 years old." I'm like he looks fucking 50. Are you sure he's 30? <laughs> you're like he's already got like my grandfather's hairline. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so. That was that was uh, fascinating to me because so nowadays it's not uncommon. Like you know, um, Charlize Theron, she's probably getting close to that age, and she's working now more than ever. That's true. Yeah. And but I I do I don't know necessarily what it's like from a um, advertising aspect, but there is still like I work with I I work with some really talented actors on some stuff that I've been doing who just they keep getting passed up by things because they they they're told they look too they look too old right and or you start getting the roles that you don't want either like i know a lot of those folks always get stuck in the, you know more like parental roles or things like that too and um, i I, str- I felt bad so the one of the first things i made when i was in school was a movie that was about my grandfather um and to reach out to people who i thought looked old enough for the part was tough because so many of them were like what do you want me to play a grandfather for i'm not ready to play that yet. sure like, sure oh. 
And then I realized, oh, I guess that was kind of insulting. But <laughs> how I don't know how to approach this. Right, like, this is what you need to do. So it's you like, you yeah. look of the right age, like you, you could play it on camera, but that's also kind of insulting, yeah. I guess. Um, so it's it's that's it's tough, and especially for women, women get treated completely different hundred percent than men do. Like it's you still see this. How often do you have like a 30, 40, 50, sometimes even year old man with partnered up against with a uh, a woman who's significantly younger right but yet they're supposed to be played as the same age right yeah yeah so i don't know there's a this movie has a lot to say about you know ageism has a lot to say about um mental illness i think yeah um untraditional relationships yeah uh, and, and like opportunity too, like what yeah, what it can do, you know, opportunity can always be a good thing, but in this case, it's kind of manipulative. I mean, even Betty Schaefer's character is more or less trying to launch her career by using Joe Gillis's, you know, story. Um, so it's like there's not a hundred percent good things that these characters are doing with their lives either. So no, definitely not. And hell, even um. Even Betty's uh, fiance, the the um, yeah, Artie. assistant assistant director, he's just trying to get himself on any job anywhere, yeah. <laughs> no matter what. Like, like when I, they were talking about writing a picture, he was like, "Oh, put a lot of background action so I can get a job." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a, that was a, a great little throwaway line. Um, but yeah, I I loved this movie, and it was definitely one of the. Uh, surprises of this season because I kind of went in with an idea of what I thought this movie was going to be be about and um, couldn't ever anticipate where it was going and that ending is just amazing. Yeah, and I mean it's crazy. I mean you can't help but think it's fueled so many um, creative ideas for other artists. Like I could see this being a big one for Quentin Tarantino and even his passion for Hollywood with you know Once Upon a Time and stuff like that too. So yeah definitely and or other ones like the player or boogie nights yeah there's i I saw a lot of boogie nights in this yeah yeah 100 percent. and um oh and i just completely forgot about it but um how fucking wild it must have felt back in 1950 to um have your narrator actually be dead oh yeah yeah like when that began and we were hearing his voice and everything, and he was talking about some screenwriter getting shot. And I was like, oh, well, this guy's going to tell us the story of what had happened. But then I got lulled into such a um, comfort of him telling the story. I forgot that who he was talking about and hadn't put it together until it happened. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because um, I was looking into how they did that shot. And I guess because underwater cameras didn't exist at that time. Yeah. They actually put a mirror at the bottom of the pool. Um, yeah. And so like that, what? the way that the mirror was reflecting that scene also distorted William Holden a little bit. We're like, I didn't even recognize and put two and two together until the very last mm-hmm. scene that the person we were looking at in the beginning of the film was in fact, pretty much a linchpin and main character for telling the story. Yeah. I, I honestly thought because like I had remembered a little bit that um, it was a sc- uh, a screenwriter who was shot and I just kept thinking well I bet Norma brings in someone else to help write this script right. and then yeah. 
he gets jealous or something. I wasn't anticipating it to be him. Yeah. And uh, that was such a great uh, the way it subverted my expectations. You know, with that that noir like uh, voiceover, and um, because like I feel like I remember uh, I had a screenwriting teacher one time tell me that uh, he's like voiceovers don't work because it, if you have your lead character voice uh, doing a voiceover, there's never any danger. Well, this movie proves that you can do it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was reading to you the reason why Billy Wilder liked it so much is it just helps move the exposition along really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And he just loved telling a story, <laughs> like big, big yeah. stories. So Definitely. Yeah. Um, so uh, when I told you about the show, I had mentioned that a, a section of the show we do is uh, the thrill house moment, the moment where uh, it just kind of – you you were you were hooked you were clenched in uh or even your favorite scene do you have a scene like that that uh, from you can remember the first time you saw it or this most recent viewing that just kind of locked you in yeah and uh, weirdly enough kind of getting back to even just like the idea of pacing of this film they do a really interesting job of um i don't know is like i've read something about like there being like a 15 minute like screenwriting method where like you try to like evolve the story every 15 minutes to keep it interesting um Mm -hmm. in context i'd read it specifically with cronenberg and i think when he was doing eastern promises you could almost like wear a watch and like it'd be on the mark (laughs) um but i guess where i'm getting with that is this thing pivots constantly it is so Mm -hmm. intriguing and so like for me it was like almost a few moments like the way they set the film up is so engaging from the get-go where like the title mm-hmm. of the film is spray painted on the oh, the side of the sidewalk yeah and then it is just moving around the asphalt on the of the road and then eventually does a 180 pivot with the camera when it you know it comes up and it's looking at some cop cars coming towards and does a 180 pivot and you see these cop cars zoom by and then you find out yeah that it's um joe gillis's body floating in the pool so like i mean that alone just set up like a lot of intrigue for me um but then even like simple stuff like getting into it with the um the chimp hand falling from beneath the blanket it's just these weird little things that they allude to that uh capture your imagination and kind of set you up from what's coming and then the biggest pivotal one for me was then just absolutely how bonkers the new year's party gets cuz like at this yeah. point Joe Gillis is just completely succumbed to this idea that he's just hanging out he's getting money Mm -hmm. he's gonna get nice clothes he's just there to chill and like rework this screenplay but then like the house is completely strange there's pictures of norma desmond everywhere he's supposed to be attending this new year's party and yeah like we said there's a a full-on like string quartet or whatever that's playing to an empty room and joe gillis is like is anybody showing up and she's like no it's just us and it's just like at that point it's like this is just like a completely bat shit scenario you know this guy's found himself in so yeah for me um like you said it's kind of hard to pick one um the chimp hand was definitely yeah because like even though this movie started off with a murder i guess i just wasn't that into expecting that sure uh because i i thought the um i wasn't expecting the weirdness yeah and the chimp hand is weird is weird yeah. it introduces you to it and then the way that the chimp looks yeah. and because they probably just made it that chimp yeah 
and then just all these like little moments of, of how surreal the movie gets like when you get that really wide shot of the 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 guy from the funeral home bringing in this tiny white coffin right or or even later on when you mentioned it before um when norma goes to see dw griffith and <laughs> that grip just shines that giant like light uh yeah. light in her eye uh practically blinding everyone else on set yeah and she's just soaking it up and it's like these little moments of of surrealness that you get um and i i love that they don't overstay their welcome no they, they, yeah. it gets a little weird but it's still relatively grounded yeah yeah and just and honestly like william holding like everything i've ever seen him and he's been really good but gloria swanson just is so incredible in this movie yeah i mean she definitely lives the character yeah like she was probably bringing a lot into this movie from her own experiences and you know for a woman that didn't didn't have a huge career after um the advent of sound she shows how good she is yeah so yeah i i love this movie yeah i'm glad you liked it man it's it's cool yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to to watching it again, and honestly, I'm just really now I'm really excited to also to to have you on again to talk about Possession. Oh yeah, that's another one I've never seen. Oh man, you're gonna love it. It's completely batshit. And then we can also talk about this other film that I just watched that was inspired by Possession, which is also kind of cool, but not as cool. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, the Untamed. Mm, so, I've not. It heard was of from that. 2016, and it's definitely like a tip of the hat to Zelowski. So. Yeah, I'm hoping because I I just have a feeling that I'm gonna just I'm gonna like possession, so I'm gonna try to. I know uh, a new edition supposed to be coming out, but I don't know if it'll be out in time for, for that episode. Oh yeah, so the four K one, right? I think. Yeah, I'm yeah. hoping just to find a copy of it on disc, sure. just because like I also know that with possession, there's two different cuts of it. There's there's Zulowski's cut, and then there's an, a weird a weird American cut that they did. Yeah, and I'm just I'm curious, and I just kind of want to see it, just see what it's like. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's pretty wild. Well, and we we'll get into it, but yeah, there's some stuff that's kind of sad about it too, but um, from like a a real life situation. But well, perfect. Well, everyone listening has that to look forward to. Um, tell us, uh, do you got anything coming up that you want people to know about? Um, it'll probably be a little bit before this is out, but you know, yeah, regardless. um, I not really. I mean, yeah, just loved hanging out with you, and it was a lot of fun. So oh, definitely, yeah. and uh, I I loved hanging out with you too. I uh i've been looking for an excuse to just hang out with you and talk about movies for a while and this was it yeah no, it was great a good one to start with too for sure so. all right well as always guys thank you very much for listening you can find uh more if you're interested you can check out our patreon where me and my beautiful and talented wife have a show called cages the rage where we are working through every nicholas cage movie in chronological order <laughs> um we, next we have the boy in blue which we still need to watch and record that's a very difficult movie to find <laughs> yeah i yeah i can't say that i've seen that one either so uh it is a movie where he plays a competitive uh, what's that like rowboat like thing that they do sometimes in colleges oh uh, sure i know what you're talking about i don't know yeah, he's, yeah he does that competitively and it's like peak nicholas cage physique <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> um and then we're getting closer and closer to peggy sue got married which is one of my oh yeah that one's fun favorites um 
So we got that if, you, if you're interested, but then also check out the other great shows on the Cinepunks Network. So that's uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X dot com. There's things like Twitch of the Death Nerve, Cinema Smorgasbord, The Cinepunks uh, TV Show, Tomb of Ideas if you're into comic books. Uh, and also check out Rough Cut Fan Club for some great uh, punk rock t-shirts. So thanks for listening, guys. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.